Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so we're continuing our sermon series through the 15 Psalms called the Songs of Ascent. And today we come to Psalms 129 and 30. If you have your Bible, you can turn to those or the text is printed on page 11 in your bulletin. Psalm 129, a song of ascents. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. And Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But that with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning, more than a watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. And give us your spirit with your word, we pray now, Lord, in Jesus' good name. Amen. <clears throat> at Simone McGuire's funeral this summer, at the very beginning of the funeral, we heard together a song called Consider the Stars. It was a song that Simone had sung and listened to many times in her last days as she dealt with tremendous pain and the kind of fear that can come with that. And the recurring refrain of that song is, do not be afraid. Consider the stars. Do not be afraid. He who made all of this and who holds all of this holds you in his hands. And it was very interesting because that was a song by which Simone took a kind of journey in her heart toward God at times when she was very afraid. And as we sat there that day listening to that song, we, as it were, walked that road that she had walked. We took that journey of her soul, and we kind of took flight in our hearts toward God in our own life circumstances as we kind of sang that song and followed her journey through its lyrics and its melody. It's a very moving moment, almost a fellowship with our departed sister. And that is what I have been suggesting is going on with this songbook of Israel's pilgrims. These are pilgrimage songs, songs for going up. Obviously, the pilgrims in Israel physically went up to God's city, Jerusalem, and to his sanctuary there where he had put the ark that represented his presence. But the songs that they sang as they walked toward Jerusalem, these were a journey of the heart, a journey of the soul toward not just a city, but toward God. I mean, God is beyond any house, right? He's beyond any city. He's the one who made the heavens and the earth. He is the keeper of Israel who never slumbers or sleeps. And they would, they would move toward the Lord as they sang in their hearts. And so we're following this journey with them in our hearts. And at this point in the journey, we have, to quote the famous line, we have been to the mountaintop. 
because I showed you last week, there are 15 psalms, seven on each side, leading up to the kind of pinnacle psalm, Psalm 127, which says, unless the Lord builds this house, it's not going to get built. Unless the Lord keeps this city, it's not going to be safe. And so we were focused in that pinnacle psalm on the house that God is building, the city that God is keeping. And it's important to remember that in the old, what we call the Old Testament, Jerusalem and God's house in Jerusalem, these are earthly pictures. They are symbols of God's rule on earth. I mean, God rules everything. God is everywhere. But he, he had a particular place that he set up to be a kind of picture of this is where God rules from. And we've been focused in on that house in that city in Psalm 127. And then in Psalm 128, we were just reminded in a very beautiful way that God's blessing that flows out of that city reaches all the way back home, all the way back to the little outposts of God's kingdom back where the pilgrims live in Psalm 128. And now we move on. We have two more psalms today, and we have, we're going to notice something in these two psalms. We've been close to God, been drawing near to him. And as you get close to God, it begins to reawaken these pilgrims to two glorious things that are at the very heart of God's relationship with us. These two things never get old. One of them is his righteousness toward us, and the other is his grace toward us. I just want to talk through these things for a couple of minutes as we work through these two psalms. Psalm 129, I want to suggest, is a song, as these pilgrims have been with God and they're moving toward God, it's a song about God's righteousness toward us. Now, this is the second time we've seen this in the, in the songs of Ascent, this is another song that begins with a solo voice. So I imagine some like quavery pilgrim voice kind of starting out, you know, greatly they have afflicted me from my youth. And we think this is going to, it sounds like it's going to be a story about maybe some childhood drama in this person's life. But then this quavering voice gets stronger and they basically do one of these, as I said last time, like testify y'all. And there's this thundering shout. Let Israel now say, and the whole crowd just roars, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. And they just shout it out with this solo voice. Because this isn't just an individual speaking. This voice from my youth, this is Israel speaking. This is the whole people. This is all of Abraham's descendants singing with a single voice, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Now I want to ask you guys something. What were the circumstances of Israel's youth? You know this very well. If you look at verses 3 and 4, it's actually gruesome imagery. It is imagery of a slave that has been tied to a rack and is about to get an unbelievable beating. By the time they are done lashing this servant, this servant's back looks like a plowed field. Now, y'all are Long Islanders. You might not really have a lot of experience with this. From upstate, I can tell you, a plowed field, deep plowed furrows. And that's what this poor slave's back looks like as they have just been whipped and beaten. That was Israel's youth. That's how it began. That's where it got started as a nation. And you know that was just the beginning. You don't really have to know a lot about Israel's story to know it has continued. There have been a lot of enemies in Israel's life, and they have mistreated Israel in a whole lot of different ways. And be very easy as you read through the stories in the Bible to just say, well, you know, this is just ancient Near Eastern politics. You know, if you're going to be a little minnow country surrounded by like a shark tank, you just got to like put your big boy pants on and realize this is just how it's going to be. You might take some beatings from time to time. It's just politics as usual. You know, tribes and nations squabbling and fighting it out over resources and whatever. That, that's, there's more going on. 
because it's really crucial as you read the Old Testament to notice that the surrounding peoples and nations around Israel, they know about Israel's God. They know about Israel's God. They know about the promises that this God supposedly made to Abraham. They really know the absolutely stunning stories about the Exodus. Like everybody in the ancient Near East got the memo about what happened to Pharaoh. It's kind of crazy to read on in the Old Testament because the Canaanites and even later the Philistines of all people are still talking about the Exodus and what happened to Pharaoh like many decades later. They know about Israel's God. These nations, they know about the laws of Sinai. They have heard the utterly shocking claim that Yahweh, Israel's God, is above all gods. That did not fly. And we are told, as you read through the Old Testament, that they hate Israel. And they hate Israel's God as a result of knowing all of this. They would take moments in battle to just openly defy the armies of the God of Israel, like you think of Goliath. They, these nations took every opportunity to scoff when Israel was having hard times. Where's your God? You know, this God you all are so pumped about. So where is he as you're having all this difficulty? Sometime if you don't, if you think I'm exaggerating this, you should read through Psalm 83. I'll just read a few verses. Oh God, don't keep silence. Don't hold your peace or be still, oh God, because behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. And then, you know, this writer names names. Moab, Edom, Gebal, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, Tyre, the Assyrians. They just, they want Israel to be like, drop dead, go away. They do not want to be ruled by Israel's God. They do not acknowledge that Israel is the beacon on earth of God's truth and God's righteousness. They don't want to hear it. And so when the writer of this Psalm 129 says in verse 5, he talks about those who hate Zion. It's important to understand this is not just political hatred. This is spiritual enmity. And interestingly, it is precisely this spiritual aspect to this hatred. That Israel's enemies don't just hate Israel because there's a political thing going on. They hate Israel because of Israel's God. That actually explains, that spiritual dimension of this, explains why this little minnow, Israel, is even still around. I mean, if it was politics as usual, they'd have been wiped out long ago. But they're still here. And in verse 4, you will notice, they have, in verse 6 and following, you'll notice that they have a lot of hope. How are they still around and how do they still have hope? Well, verse 4 tells us they are still around and they have hope because what does the opening of verse 4 say? Look at, your, look at your text. What does the opening of verse 4 say? This is why this minnow is still here, still has hope. Because the Lord is what? The Lord is righteous. Do you know what it means the Lord is righteous? It means the Lord never fails, never fails to be who he has said he is. He never fails to do what he has promised to do. That's what the righteousness of God means. He never fails to be who he said he is. He never fails to do what he's promised to do. This is not just politics as usual. God, Israel's God, is righteous. He called this people. He redeemed this people by a mighty arm. He exalted this pack of slaves to be his treasure. 
And so Israel cannot be destroyed for the very simple reason that God, the maker of heaven and earth, always keeps his promises. He is righteous. He always comes through. And that's what Israel's story shows again and again and again in a hundred ways. And so what is interesting is that the very scars of Israel much like the later wounds of Jesus, the very scars of these people testify from what depths God has raised them. That in the very deepest pit, God's righteousness was deeper, God's faithfulness was deeper, and he exalts the lowly, and he brings beauty out of ashes. That's what he's promised to do, that's what he does, he's righteous. Their whole story tells that. And that's what also, the righteousness of their God, is what enables them to turn to the future, and as they do in verses six through eight, as they look ahead, they can pray down curses on those who hate Zion. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. They pray down curses on those who hate Zion. Now, you know that these pilgrims have harvest in their minds because the three pilgrimages were at the beginning of harvest, the end of harvest, and after harvest was stored. So they're thinking about harvest. And as they pray about the haters of Zion, they pray that the haters of Zion will be nothing like the harvest back home. That they'll be like some of that grass that grows up on the rooftop. It is never gathered into sheaves. It is useless except to be burned. It is worthless. And they pray, may those who hate Zion, may they never be harvested, never celebrated, never blessed. I'd like you to notice something about, that seems like a pretty strong prayer. This has nothing to do with personal vengeance. This is about God's righteousness. They are praying with a righteous longing that the righteous God will righteously judge those who have set themselves against his righteous and life-giving rule. God's what is God righteous to do, brothers and sisters? He's righteous to come and give life to sinners who have chosen death. I mean, this is something you can't understand as you read the story of Jesus. He is here, quite obviously, for no other reason than to heal the lame and the blind and the, and the leper and to raise the dead. He is here to give life, and people set themselves against him. It's why Lady Wisdom, speaking for God in Proverbs 8, says, all those who hate me love death. And so we're just praying, God, you find this in Revelation chapter 11, the church is praying to God and they say, God, it is time to destroy the destroyers of the earth. If people hate life and they hate God and they hate goodness and they just want to burn it all down in the rebellion, then deal with them, Lord. Righteously deal with them. Now I'd like to make just a quick observation here before we move on to Psalm 130. Do you know why these pilgrims are so comforted by God's past righteousness and why they're so confident in his future righteousness? If you look closely, it is because, as you see in verse one, it's because they're not thinking like individuals. They're thinking like a whole people. Every one of these individual pilgrims identifies with Israel as a whole, the whole story of all our people We have an amazing long story of God's faithfulness and God's righteousness to us. And I was just reflecting on that just briefly. What that kind of solidarity, so you you and I as Americans, we are trained to think of ourselves 
you know, if you're really going to make it in America, you should probably kind of cut yourself off from thinking of yourself too much as part of your family, too much a part of where you were born, like make your own way, do your own thing, find your own success story. It's all about you. But I was thinking about how this kind of solidarity, this kind of deep collective identity that it's about us, we are the people of God, how that would help us today with a few things. You know, one thing it would do, it would help us to feel with those saints in this world who are still awaiting God's righteousness. And there are certainly saints in this world who are. This picture, this gruesome image of this beaten slave reminds us, brothers and sisters, right now, right now, December 10th, 2023, there are Christians, there are believers in Jesus, followers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in this world, and they are being furrowed for Christ. And they are our people and we should feel with them. You know, it's not pleasant. I don't like it at all. You should think about that woman in her cell right now, screaming as the blows of the guards rain down on her, crying out for God to help me, preserve me, keep me, guard me, and she's just shrieking in pain. You should think about her. Do you know why? Because she's your sister. And I think it would help grab our hearts does, do the faith, does the faith of those kind of people, beloved, does, that, does, does her faith stir your faith, that's what your Jesus is worth. See, you don't feel that in your comfortableness. You look at that woman screaming in her cell as she is beaten for Christ, that is what your Jesus is worth. So what are you doing with your freedom? It, with your comfortableness? These are our people. That sense of solidarity would really help us feel with saints that are awaiting God's righteousness as they endure the hatred of Zion. But it would do more. It wouldn't just help us feel with saints who are awaiting God's righteousness. We're waiting for it too. It would help us find comfort as we await God's righteousness because we may not suffer like slaves, thanks be to God. You and I probably in our lives will not suffer like the persecuted church. I personally thank God for that because I don't know how I'd bear up under it. But you have scars. They may not be beatings from physical guards in prison cells, but you have scars. You all are scarred by the decay and the death that was unleashed by human sin. I know some of you right now are dealing with this. Your life is scarred by decay and death. It was all caused by human sin. Many of you have been scarred by man's inhumanity to man, the cruelty, the betrayals, the negligence of people. We're all scarred in various ways, including our children, by the contempt of an ex-Christian world a world that inherited from the followers of Jesus a very fervent belief in rights, wrongs, and progress, but wants nothing to do with God or the gospel. And we're scarred by the contempt that surrounds us. I want to ask you, why is it, as we seek comfort, why is it that none of my sufferings, and please don't downplay your sufferings just because they're not like beatings, none of my sufferings in my past, none of my sufferings that I'm enduring right now, None of the sufferings that I anticipate dealing with this today, this week, in the years to come, none of these sufferings consumes me. None of it, I am able, as a follower of Jesus, as, as Joe likes to say, to right-size my sufferings. They are real sufferings, but they do not consume me, whether they're memories or experiences now or things that I'm anxious about in the future. Why can we right-size our sufferings? Why can we find comfort as we're still waiting for God's righteousness to be manifested to us? We can right-size our sufferings because the God of my fathers is my father.
the God of Joseph and, and, and Daniel and, and Moses and the prophets and the, and the God of the Apostle Paul and the God of the Apostle Thomas. You know, these, this God of my fathers, he is my father. And I have a much bigger story than Ben Miller's story to draw upon to find comfort. And this big story, it doesn't tell me why God allows me to suffer, but it tells me what the suffering is for because I can see it all through the story. The suffering of God's people as they await God's, right, God's righteousness to be revealed, that suffering is to gradually over time show that the surpassing power is of God. It is not of us. And God is making me a broken jar of clay that shows the excellency of the power belongs to God. It does not belong to me. And so I am comforted in my suffering. And the third thing this kind of solidarity would do is it would help us to call down curses righteously. You guys heard of imprecatory prayer? God break the teeth of the wicked. That is biblical language. But you have to pray that in solidarity. That's not about you. I'm not asking God to smash people who have made my life hard. What I am praying for is I pray with the people of God throughout the ages, God bring down the wicked. I am praying that God will crush the serpent and those who serve the serpent and that he will destroy the war machines of the wicked against his church as a whole and cause his kingdom to flourish, what we call Zion. His people in the world cause it to flourish. And in prayers like that, as we pray them with the church throughout the ages, there is not a single hint of superiority. God was very clear with Israel, I'm not giving you the land of Canaan because you're so righteous and the Canaanites are so wicked. It's not about your righteousness. It's about what I am doing. And that brings us to Psalm 130. So Psalm 129 is about God's righteousness toward us. Psalm 130 is about his grace toward us because in this song, there is something that is totally new on the journey. We have not seen this before. And when I hear those words in the verse, first verse, de profundis in Latin, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. I assume, having sung everything up till now, I assume those depths are just another way of describing what we've been singing about since we left home. And what we've been singing about since we left home is the, to use the metaphors, the word pictures, the storms and the snares of God's enemies. Way back in Meshach and Kedar, we were among lying people, warlike people. We've talked about the evil of the wicked, the contempt of the wicked, the anger of the wicked, the scepter, the furrows, the lash, the cords of the wicked. And I assume we're still talking about that. We've been steadily moving toward God, right? He is our help among all these depths we've been singing about. And now, for the first time, we encounter a very sobering possibility. And that is that as we get close to God, that might hurl us into very different and even more fearful depths. Because as we make our way toward God, the nearer that we draw to the Holy One who inhabits eternity, you begin to realize something very frightening, and that is you can distinguish yourself less and less and less from God's enemies. The closer you get to God, the less the moral gap between you and other people, it just shrinks down to almost nothing. Because, as the psalmist says in verse three, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. Do you know what the word mark is? It's the word keep. See, God keeps Zion and he never nods off. He sees all. If God were to keep 
our acts of waywardness. I love that translation of John Golden Gate. If God were to keep watch over our acts of waywardness, no one stands. Not out in Meshach and Kedar, not in Zion either. No one stands if God should mark things down. And we need to look at this. Because, you know, sin has, without question, brought many miseries into the world. And we can very easily feel those miseries as depths. I, I, you know, when, when, when you're just dealing with misery, it feels like depths. But I wonder, brothers and sisters, how often do we feel the much, much, much greater depth of sin itself? Not miseries that sin has caused, but the depth of sin. The depth of being estranged from God. The depth of having offended God. I mean, nothing about you and me is more basic than our relationship with God. Do you realize that? Yes? Nothing's more basic about you than your relationship with God. That is absolutely core to your very existence, but that relationship is the one we most easily ignore. You know, we feel bumps in all of our other relationships, but it is very easy to walk around in this world as if God's estimation of us, God's view of us is almost of no consequence. And yet this psalm says he is the one who sees all as he keeps Israel. He never sleeps. And brothers and sisters, what that means is God sees all. He doesn't need a camera in your house to see how you really are. He doesn't need a camera in your heart to see what's really going on. He sees absolutely everything. And, and the wicked, you know, the wicked are often just blind, willfully blind to God's gaze. But Zion dwellers, as they draw near to the Holy One, they feel that gaze very keenly. And I'm actually going to zero in the, on this just a little bit more. Do you know what's wrong with the world? Everyone talks about what's wrong with the world, and there's lots to talk about. Do you know what's really wrong with the world? Do you know why there is death at work in every single living thing under the sun? Do you know why there is that sense of foreboding, which we can ignore much of the time, but it is there in the shadows of human existence, that sense in your darker moments when it's as if you just kind of can't run from your own thoughts and you have this weird sense of foreboding, I think I'm going to pay. I think we're going to pay. In fact, some days I actually wonder deep down if my existing is such a good thing. Do you know why that is there? Because of you. Because of your proud, ungrateful, stubborn, self-absorbed heart. That's why. Because you love God only insofar as his way of running things pleases you. Because you love your neighbor only insofar as they serve your interests. That's why everything's dying. That's what's wrong with the world. And I know what you're thinking. Pastor Miller, you better be talking about you, man, because you are sounding mad judgy. You have no idea how much I'm talking about me, but the fact that you're thinking about me right now shows how hard it is to look in the mirror and to say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, like there are no others, because I have sinned against the God who made me and gives me breath, and I've done worse as a child of God. I have not just sinned against the holy God who made me. I've sinned against my Savior and my Father. I've sinned against grace. But you know the crazy word this writer uses in this psalm? If the Lord should mark iniquities. If. 
Because many of us feel as if that's what God does, that God walks around with this giant clipboard and he just delights in marking transgressions. Aha, aha, aha. That's how we picture God. If God did, we're all toast. But he doesn't. In fact, it is utterly not so with him. That's how we picture God, marking on his clipboard. And if he should do it, we're done. But it's not that way at all. I don't know if there's a more shocking, glorious verse in all the Bible than Psalm 130, verse 4, but it's the exact opposite. With you, there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness with you. And forgiveness has to be with God. Only God can forgive sins. One of the most daft things you ever hear is, I'm trying to figure out how to forgive myself. Do you know you can't forgive yourself because you're not the offended party? You are the offending party. The offended party must forgive, and that is God. And the psalm says there is forgiveness with him. It is his nature to forgive. It is God's character to forgive. It is God's heart to forgive. It is literally who God is. It is with him. It is in him to be merciful. The scripture tells us that God is determined to forgive sins and he does not regard the cost, even if it's the life of his own son. He is that determined to forgive sins. And when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, the son of God dying so that we can be forgiven, that that is the immeasurable breadth and length and depth and height of God's grace towards sinners. He is so determined to forgive our sins. That's who he is, that you may be feared. As I said last week, fearing God is not being terrified he's going to destroy you. Fearing God is reverent trust. And when you know that God forgives sins, that is who he is, you can fear him. In fact, I'll say it a little more strongly. You don't really know God. You don't really understand who God is. You don't really understand how great God is. You don't really fear him as he ought to be feared until you know that he is the God who forgives sins because he delights in showing mercy. The, Moses says to God, show me your glory. God says, fine. He puts Moses in a little cleft of the rock. He's going to make my glory pass by you. And then he shouts out, I am. God, I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Moses, that's my glory. I forgive sins. The apostle Paul will call him the God of all grace. It's guaranteed grace. There is forgiveness with him. It's faithful grace because we are told in verse Five, that with the Lord there is steadfast love, that beautiful word chesed in Hebrew, love that sticks, love that never fails, love that goes on and on and on and on forever because God is forever, faithful grace. God is the God of abounding grace because it goes on to say there's plentiful redemption with him, like it's running over. And it's comprehensive grace, verse eight. He will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities. There's like not a single sin in your past, in your present. The sins you're gonna commit tomorrow, the sins on your deathbed, God has already determined to forgive all of them. He will forgive us from all of our iniquities. And of course, it is all revealed, most of all, in Jesus, his son. The psalm ends, as you see in verses five through eight, with this waiting as for the dawn. This is, from the Old Testament standpoint, this is hope for Messiah, hope for the, the one who is to come, and the pilgrims together and individually, what are they waiting for? They're awaiting, as we heard uh, Zechariah say, they're awaiting the sunrise of righteousness. 
the Lord our righteousness to rise with healing in his wings, the one who will secure our forgiveness. And what distinguishes God's people from the wicked is not that we don't sin. What distinguishes us is that we run to God with our sin. We run to, to God with our sin because of who he is. That's how the psalm opens. Out of the depths I cry to you, the very one I've offended. Humanism says we'll save ourselves. False religion says God will save us if we earn it. God says I will save you by my free grace alone. And so we run to him. And brothers and sisters, when God shows you your sin, and he will show you your sin, when you are just most overwhelmed by it, by the grief, by the shame, by the regret, the only reason God shows that to you is to drive you into his arms. That is his sole purpose. And you can know that the grace of God has done its work in your life when even as you continually repent, because there's always more sin to repent of, the overall mood of your life becomes one of peace. As you cling to the word of the Lord and you cling to the promise of your baptism, you will begin to be able to say really truly from within, I'm good with God. I'm good. I'm at peace. He is satisfied with Christ. When Jesus said it is finished, God heard it. He's satisfied. He loves me. He's never going to stop loving me. And there's just peace. I'll close with this from Andrew Wilson's wonderful new book, Remaking the World. He says, grace has always been one of Christianity's most striking features. The claim that God in Christ takes the sin and death of the world upon himself in order to freely and incongruously give his righteousness and life to those who don't deserve it is without parallel in any other system of belief, religious or otherwise. In a world powered by works and measured by achievement, there is something deeply refreshing about the unmerited, transforming favor of God given without regard to the worth of the recipient. Rebellious wastrels return home to red carpet welcomes. Work-shy vineyard workers receive far more than they deserved. Tax collectors and sinners enter ahead of Pharisees and Bible teachers. Last-minute converts enter paradise on the same terms as everybody else. The message is entirely pitched at those whose works do not measure up. There is a chasm of difference between the last words of the Buddha, strive with endurance, strive with earnestness, and the dying words of Christ, it is finished. That's the grace of your God. And that, brothers and sisters, is worth a thousand journeys of the soul. God, give us your peace. In Jesus we pray. Amen.